you know, I was just about to get ready to attempt to have a swim and turned around and saw Shannon on that wave. And it was amazing, but <laughs> then he was just cartwheeling down the face. It just really engulfed him. And so I wasn't really prepared at that time to, to go in. It was nearly like a moral dilemma, you know, what Shannon drown or go in and, and do the rescue. But we did find ourselves in there, but this was now two ways have gone through. So Shannon's now had a 45 second hold down, I would say. And I was actually expecting someone else from the channel because the channel was packed with so many other skis to go in and do it that were more prepared, more, they looked more prepared. They just had wetsuits on and stuff like that. I, I was still like fully clothed. I didn't really want to fall off the ski. And then, um, yeah, I just went into where I thought he would pop up just from past experiences. And um, we managed to get him on the ski before the, the third wave. And like Shannon said, that would have been yeah, a far different scenario. G'day, and welcome back to Real Risk, the adventure podcast. Now, for those who enjoy video podcasts, I've engaged with Podbooth here in Adelaide to produce the show, and I'm really excited about how it's going to work. For those who listen in the car or on your daily walk, the audio files, of course, will still be available. My name's Richard Harris, and you might remember me from my involvement in the 2018 Thai Cave Rescue. Well, that adventure has led to many other exciting opportunities, including the chance to chat with like-minded adventurers and risk-takers on this podcast. There's lots of exciting things to announce over the course of the season and plenty of brilliant, daring, adventurous and thoughtful guests already lined up. There'll be more extreme athletes, more divers, more soldiers, more people who get off on going fast, climbing high or challenging themselves in ways most of us can't even dream of. And all of them will talk to us about why they think the benefits outweigh the dangers, why risk is integral to making us stronger, more resilient and better able to cope with the stresses of daily life. And let's face it, when has that ever been more important? G'day and welcome back to the Real Risk Podcast. I'm definitely starting to feel more comfortable with this video format and I can see that plenty of you are having a look as well as listening to the audio version. Now the easiest way to find the video is to search for Real Risk Podcast on YouTube and then subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Easy! Now today I've gone completely mad and I've invited not one, but two guests to the show. So old mate Rory over there behind the scenes is gonna be a very busy boy, switching his little dials and, and controls and setting up great shots for us. The southwest corner of Western Australia is famous for stunning scenery. I'd reluctantly admit the world's best beaches, massive surf and extraordinarily large great white sharks. All these elements form the common thread that brought these two guys together. Russell Ord from Esperance is a world-class surf photographer whose big wave images reveal the beauty and pure dramatic power of the ocean to those of us who are not quite brave enough to paddle out ourselves. And his mate, one of the athletes who challenge themselves on these multi-story monsters, is surfer Shannon Worrell. But there's a lot more to the story here than a couple of surfies out for a day in the water. I hope you enjoy the show. Well, big welcome to both of you. Shannon Worrell, big wave surfer, uh, all the way from Margaret River, I believe. G'day to you. Hey, how are you going? Good, mate. Are you in Margaret River at the moment? And just a little bit further north. So we're just up near the Dunsbury area. Russell Ord, big time under uh, uh, surf photographer. I nearly said underwater photographer. That's me. I'm the big time underwater photographer. Uh, <laughs> Russell, thank you very much for joining us as well. No, thank, thanks for having us, having us both. Yeah, you know, you're definitely the underwater photographer. I've, I've looked at some of your shots. I'm definitely not getting those type of shots, that's for sure. Well, I think um, I'd say the same 
for what you do, I think I've actually always wanted to have a go at surf photography because it kind of looks a bit easier, but there's a whole world of, of worry and danger out there that I don't think I'm, I'm ready to face. So I'll be, I'll be interested to pick your brains a little bit on, on the techniques and the equipment and stuff. What came first for you, the photography or the surf or which way around? Oh, it's definitely the surf. Yeah, I've been surfing since I was like five and only really got into the photography because I got injured surfing and just picked up a camera basically and started shooting mates. How long ago was that? 20 years ago now. It's been going for a while. So yeah, just picked up the camera, started shooting mates and it basically took off from there. So you still do a bit of surfing? Well, I'd like to say, yeah, I was surfing two or three times a day up until early last year, but I um, dislocated my shoulder. So I've had a shoulder reconstruction and a, a number of surgeries. So I've been out of the water. I actually surfed this morning. I don't know if you'd call it a surf. It was like a learner surf. Yeah. So Shannon, let, let's talk to you about your surfing. When did that start for you? I think um, I've read that you've been in the water pretty much since the same sort of age as, as Russell. So where I was brought up was uh, down in Esperance, right down on the south coast just before the Great Aussie Bite. And the nature down there is just next level. It's very pristine and just such an amazing environment to be able to have that as your backyard and grow up down there. So we were surfing, diving and fishing from a super early age. I had my first big boat when I was 16, so I didn't even have a licence. And uh, I remember my dad reversing in this 21-foot boat with twin 85 motors on it saying, don't go too far. <laughs> so... It really was, you know, orientated around the water. Does surfing pay the bills for you or do you have to have a real job as well? No, definitely have to have a real job. There's probably not that many people in the big wave game making a living. It's probably only the top, I don't know, what do you reckon, Audi? Top 5 or 10% that actually probably make a living? Yeah, that, they'd be pushing it for sure. Definitely for me. It's just uh, I started as a hobby and just I think because we'd been around the ocean for so long, I think it, it wasn't an immediate jump. It was just incrementally, you know, pushing the limits just a little bit further and a little bit further. Weren't really travelling with photographers or anything, but I was surfing a few of the breaks that were really well known uh, for being big wave spots and a lot of the international guys had come in and fly. So because I was in that kind of arena, surfing the same kind of waves, um, a few photos got taken. And that's probably, to be honest, why I'm a little bit more well known on the big on the big wave front, not through uh, the profession of chasing down big wave surfing as such. So Shannon, I'm quite interested about this relationship between the photographer and the surfer, having both of you on on the show at the same time is a good opportunity to explore that. And so for the surfer, is the photographer primarily an annoyance to be, uh, you know, you don't want to run them over and they're, they're in the way, or are they the guy who can make you famous and um, actually... Uh, you know, create a career for you potentially if, if that's what you're inclined to do. It depends what surfer you ask, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very much Audi in my relationship. I don't know. It was a long time ago, wasn't it, Audi? It might have been 20 years ago. So I'm probably a bit more of a, uh, like I said, I haven't ever chased a career in surfing. So we were probably trying to protect our backyard when I first met Audi and we, we didn't really want surf photographers to uh, come down to our waves that no one knew about. So that was my version of surfing um, to start with. But then later on, as I've uh, done a bit more, going to a few of the more well-known breaks, yeah, it's awesome to have the photographers there and be working with them and well, I've heard you talk on another podcast about you know this this uh, this clash between wanting to protect 
secret and fantastic sites and therefore not wanting any photography really done there because you might expose the you know headland or something i presume that you can see in the distance and people go aha i know where that is or uh, versus you know seeing yourself on the front cover of surfing life or tracks or something like that that's kind of nice to see a nice photograph of yourself i imagine especially in a barrel or something like that all of us have got a little bit of ego you know in some way shape or form so it is it's nice to see a photo of you somewhere or to get a bit of acknowledgement for some of the things that you've been doing you've got plenty of coastline to choose from in western australia in particular so is that still a reasonable expectation or hope for for yourself and and for your kids that they'll find a break that no one might have surfed before well, there's plenty out there still, for sure, definitely. I think in West Oz in particular, we've got a pretty pretty big expanse of waves and islands and bits and pieces. So there's a, there's a lot of angry stuff out there that people just don't want to go near as well too. Russell, from your point of view as a photographer going in out into the breaks, um, what's the reception generally like? It's pretty good. I, I'm, like, I'm only really working with crew that... In, in these particular waves that would do it without a um, camera in the first place. So they're, they're, they're just doing it for the love. There's been plenty of times where, you know, you get called up by young up-and-coming surfers that want to go and shoot this wave, but they haven't really, what we would say, you know, jump across the T's and dotted the I's. So I'm just working with guys that really love to do it anyway. They would be toe, toe surfing with or without the camera, you know, like Shannon just said. With the big wave surfing, Russell, you know, obviously there's often uh, tow, <coughs> tow craft out there, jet skis, and you know, it's pretty different. You're a long way offshore sometimes. Are you usually in the water taking photos uh, on those sort of breaks or do you tend to sit on the back of a jet ski? The first seven years I was just sh- sitting on the ski and just shooting every single moment, but I just realised how through cir- – I actually broke my leg and through those circumstances – I. I just wanted to change the way I shot and, and then I wanted to shoot from the water because I'm a surfer myself and um, you don't really get the feeling of a surfer sitting on the back of the ski and, and shooting every moment. You've got you've to have the hold downs, you've got to have the wipeouts yourself. So that's why I started shooting from the water mostly. And when I look at my own work now, it's, it's all those type of shots that I can look back and see uh, effort. So they're the kind of shots I like like taking might be a dumb question do you wear a mask when you're shooting from the water no not at the big wave spots i try to keep all the gear to a bare minimum because uh, all that sort of stuff to, to just get ripped apart i'll wear a mask if i'm trying to shoot in places like tahiti and it's only a couple of feet and i'm doing underwater shots but um no it's just it's just your camera i'll, I'll wear a um, vest a safety vest and a oh, helmet ready to go do you lick the dome port or the or the port on the camera to keep the the water off it is that still the go yeah that's that's still the trick with the the wide angle just keep licking that port yeah excellent (laughs) i wonder if you uh, run out of saliva i do that a lot when i'm taking photos and and uh, so forth in caves uh, because you get a lot of fog and mud and dirt and i find myself licking my camera all the time and often think I'd rather be in the surf at that point. I think I can tell, you know, looking at, at great surf photos, Russell, when the photographer is in the water and, you know, you're kind of almost below the level of the, the surfer sometimes and you see that footage of the of the surfer go past um, and the photographer sort of ducks just in front of them and, and you often wonder how often do they end up going up the face of the wave and coming a cropper over the top is that all on the timing i guess russell it depends where you are you can go over the falls at the right quite a few times if you push the limits but 
at that particular spot, I'm only going to try for the photo when I'm 90, pretty much 90% sure I'm going to get it. Otherwise, I'm just going to duck under and, and not bother with the effort. But, yeah, I've been over the falls numerous times. Um, when did you guys first meet? Uh, like, like Shannon was just saying, how he wants to protect his um, waves, it would have been just a phone call like 20 years ago when he, he must have heard that I was sniffing down his neck of the woods and he just wanted to make sure that he that <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> so, warned you off, did he? Yeah, yeah, he got, 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 got the warning. So that's, it's quite ironic how we're such good friends now and we, we do a little bit of work together. But it's um, but I can definitely see his point because I'm the same. I'm a surfer myself and I love to keep it keep it quiet. And even as a photographer, the last thing I want to be doing is shooting with 10 other photographers all getting the same stuff. So I was pretty secretive myself and still am. But, yeah, we, that was, that's probably the first time we met. Shannon, I don't know how you ever make any friends if you're going to ring people up like that and uh, be nasty to them. <laughs> yeah, a little bit younger, a little bit more, uh, what would you say, a little bit more spunk back in the day. And one of the stories I understand that, you know, cemented your bond as mates and uh, watermen uh, was when you came a bit of a cropper, Shannon, at uh, this this pretty gnarly break called The Right. I'd kind of, um, it was at a stage where we really, Russ had imported a breath old guru to come and, upskill and it was when Russ just before he might have been, been while you were shooting the documentary Russ uh, one shot that I know we'd been doing a heck of a lot of training and then this big day came along and it's not often that uh, all the conditions link up for a big mega day when it comes to surf like the wind the swell so you don't get too many opportunities per year to really get what you're looking for and this day came along and we ended up heading down to the south coast um, of WA to this spot and got out there and it was one of the biggest, probably one of the biggest days I've seen it still now, but the conditions were perfect and there was a heap of nervous tension. Uh, normally you rock up and, you know, it's big. There's always people being a little bit nervous, but this day was just really noticeable. It was, I don't think anyone was surfing. There might have been one other guy. It just got in and it was early morning. One of these waves came in and the horizon just kind of blackened out and I hadn't looked at it for too long that morning because I was it was that big that I knew it had psyched me out. So we ended up pretty much deciding just to go for it and I jumped on the back of the rope behind the jet ski, got propelled into this massive lump of water and I thought it was going to be the best one I've ever had. And I just got absolutely lit up. At the right in particular, there's a heap of distance between the surface and actually where it draws out the wave. So you can be up to maybe, I reckon probably about 10 to 15 metres instantly as soon as it closes over. And then there's a rock where all the water rolls down and it pushes you down even deeper. So it's, it's a really deep water wave and the, instantly that pressure, you know, you're diving, your eardrums want to burst immediately. So as soon as you fall off there, you've got to be going for your nose to try to equalise, otherwise your eardrums are going to go straight away. And this one wipeout in particular was really violent. It was so early in the day and no one was really, I guess, ready to come and do a rescue. And Russ was there with his son on the back how old was Kalani at the time there, Russ? He would have been 16. Yeah, because I, I remember, you know, there's that photo of 
you guys on the back and it was from that day. I know Kalani's looking pretty young there, but Russ is in his clothes still, Kalani's still in clothes, not geared up, and then Russ has actually come into the impact zone, which is hectic. There's all this turbulent water running around. The jet skis aren't getting clear water due to all the bubbles and water movement, so they're really, they bog down. So Russ has come in there. Catherine's not watching or anything in the background, is she? <laughs> she probably doesn't need to hear this story. It's Russ's wife. <laughs> Um, yeah, with Kalani on the back and he came and got me out of the water there and I was not in a good way at all. So it kind of, I was very fortunate that Russ acted on instinct and just came in, came in and got me there. Yeah, so I got there a little bit later because um, I was going through some last minute preparation with my son and, um, you know, I was just about to get ready to attempt to have a swim and turned around and saw Shannon on that wave and it was amazing but... <laughs> Uh, then he was just cartwheeling down the face. It just really engulfed him. And so I wasn't really prepared at that time to, to go in. It was nearly like a moral dilemma, you know, watch Shannon drown or go in and, and do the rescue. But we did find ourselves in there. But this was now two ways have gone through. So Shannon's now had a 45-second hold down, I would say. And I was actually expecting someone else from the channel because the channel was packed with so many other skis to go in and do it that were more prepared. More, they looked more prepared. They had wetsuits on and stuff like that. I, I was still like fully clothed. I didn't really want to fall off my ski. And then, um, yeah, I just went into where I thought he would pop up just from past experiences. And um, we managed to get him on the ski before the, the third wave. And like Shannon said, that would have been yeah, a far different scenario, you know, best case scenario would have been a recess and worst case, well, yeah, he wouldn't be here talking today. So, and then we just got him back in the channel and just was just another day. <laughs> and was he conscious enough to help get himself back on the, on the back of the ski or? Yeah, it was good to have my son there. He could um, give him a little bit of a hand. He was conscious enough, but I don't know if I would have been able to get him up on, and himself up by himself. So having my son there just kind of just helped him drag onto the back of the sled because we've got a rescue sled on the back of the ski, but mine also had a, you know, a big pelican with all my camera gear. That's where I put all my camera gear. That's why. And so there wasn't a hell of a lot of room and we probably only had 10 seconds at the most to get him up. Otherwise we would have had to leave or we would have, we would have been copying it as well. So it was um, it was a quick rescue that one. Mm. And what happened after that? Was there more surfing for you, uh, Shannon, that day? Yeah, I did. It was one of those learning lessons I probably shouldn't have because um, I was definitely concussed at the time or afterwards, and I should have just hung up the boots. What about you, Russell? Have you had any? I mean, I'm sure you would have had some significant wipeouts, but have you had any near misses in the surf? I had one in particular where I decided that. This is right at the start of my photography career when I wanted wanted to shoot big waves and I had this brainwave of getting um, like a 300 mil in a water housing because no one's ever done it. And I thought oh, I could just paddle out on my um, bigger surfboard I had, sit in the channel and start shooting. And there was, back then, there was only really one tow team in uh, Marks, uh, Courtney Gray, Damon Easto. These guys used to tow Marks Bommy. And so I paddled out there put the camera, <laughs> this is a film camera as well, 300 mil. But this obviously is 
this is going to sound so dumb now when I say it, but I thought I'd just put it in a backpack, put it on my um, back and, and paddle out in the surf and then kind of just like, it's like the whole bay closed out and these guys didn't even know I was there. I remember going down to the bottom, but I also remember thinking to myself, and this is pre-breath uh, hole training and stuff like that, but I had surf thinking, oh, don't drop the backpack because I've got my camera gear in there. And then I was like, oh, no, I'm going to have to drop it just to get back up to the <laughs> surface. And I think I took a little bit of uh, salt water in when I just got to the top and it was it was kind of a, it was a, I never did it again. It was definitely a lesson, but I'd get home and I, I told my um, wife that, I'm going to have to buy a jet ski to, to shoot this stuff because it's, you know, I've got to join what they're doing. So I just want to ask both of you, I'll start with you, Shannon. You know, this podcast is about risk as someone who, you know, does a sport that is perceived as, as dangerous. I'm going to say right now, compared to what you guys do, I think cave diving is the safest sport in the world. You know, you know, you're going out there, you've, you have experiences like this, you, you see people around, you have accidents and, and no doubt. You know, you've been around when there's been fatalities, if you've been around big wave surfing long enough. For you, Shannon, what, what's the benefits of doing this stuff? Not just to you, but if, you, you know, if your kids ask you to, you know, let them do it one day, what, what do you think are the benefits compared to the, the obvious risks of these kind of activities? I've probably had to be really honest with myself too. If you get it wrong, or not even if you get it wrong, just the scenarios we do, I guess, put ourselves in. The outcome is potentially death, which you can't hide from those questions. Uh, for a long time as I was growing up, I had a few, I guess you'd say, traumatic experiences when I was younger. So there wasn't any conscious thought into moving into big waves or uh, taking those risks. Uh, there was no calculation because uh, for myself, I didn't really mind what the outcome was, as crazy as that sounds when I was a bit younger. Now I have you know, a beautiful wife, two little kids. Yeah, to have to ask yourself, is this worth it? And do you really want to be doing this? And why are you doing this now? And when you were younger, there was probably a little bit of ego involved as well. I think now and... The reason why I think Russ and probably myself, I can't speak for Russ, but the reason I keep on putting myself in high-risk situations is because in those moments, I guess, uh, where you are having a bad one, I, for instance, the wipeout scenario or those traumas in life or monumental things that are shaping you, I think that is actually living and that's where the most growth that you'll ever have is actually in your life. And when you can reflect on those moments and learn and then hopefully, like nowadays, you know, pass on through your experiences what you've learned, then that can be of benefit to others. In fact, you're, you're not only sort of embracing that philosophy, but you're, you're doing your bit to teach and mentor younger surfers from what I understand with sort of management of big wave surfing and safety and stuff. You're running some courses along that, those lines? Yeah, we try to run some heavy water courses. I think it, we became aware that, you know, we're in the wild, wild west over here and, and I've been a part of it very much though, you know, from the beginning where we were just shooting from the hip. And there was means to take down the risks and minimise them a bit and we just weren't utilising them. And as a culture, 
in WA and WA surfing. I think, you know, bravado and risk-taking is looked upon as being cool almost. Um, and I guess that culture probably leads to more people getting hurt basically. So we probably tried to shift the culture mm -hmm. in the process of trying to shift the culture a little bit so that everyone's looking out for each other. They're taking the risk still, but have the skill set and the apparatus and the safety equipment to be able to actually execute on a high level and still get everyone home. Yeah, it sounds like both of you guys have done a lot of training outside of just, you know, hitting the waves with your breath hold training and, and uh, physical training. And clearly at, at this level and these sort of waves, you know, you have to be an athlete. You have to apply yourself. You can't just, uh, you know, go for a surf and then chug a few beers afterwards. You have to really throw yourself into this in a pretty serious way as, as the stakes have gotten higher and higher, I guess, over, over many years with uh, toe-in surfing and bigger and bigger waves being tackled. Russell, it's going to be hard to beat Shannon's answer on this, I suspect, but um, <laughs> <laughs> that, was fairly, that was fairly eloquent. I, I was thinking about my answers to those sort of questions sometimes and feeling a bit inadequate, but um, let me rephrase the question somehow for you so you can tackle it from a different way maybe. You're probably like me, I suspect, that you occasionally come under the withering stare of loved ones, uh, one in particular who who sort of queries why you're doing stuff that would put you at risk. And, um, you know, I, I personally often feel quite selfish about my pursuits. And uh, how do you justify that to yourself um, w when you get that look from a certain someone? Yeah, I don't, I don't actually get any of that because maybe my wife doesn't really even know what I, what I do, like the full extent of it. It's only really when the introduction of social media and... Um, the internet when people will take a shot of me doing what I do as well, that she probably got a full understanding. But I really try to push the, the journey on like not jumping, jumping different stages. So I actually don't see it as that risky because it's just there's risk management and I think we do that so well that the risk just comes down and we're – it's that com with, combined with experience that I, I find it's not really a risky thing. For me, to, the first time I ever shot water at the right, you know, people thought it was the craziest thing ever, but it, it wasn't really because I'd done so much preparation and, and that's what I really want to push to my kids. So, you know, I don't... I'm not worried if they want to do risky things in their life. My oldest son's probably the, the craziest one of the lot who surfs as well and surfs pretty big waves. But it's just as long as he's put done everything he possibly can to minimise the risk, I'll be, I'll be happy because there's, like Shannon said, there's far too many cowboys to, to get a, you know, they get a jet ski and all of a sudden they're towing 20-foot waves. And, and basically, in my opinion, that's why that guy got drowned. You know, he, he pretty much was going to drown because they wanted to get social media shots. It just doesn't make sense. So I'm really pushing that angle for, for my kids. A little bit earlier on, I, I referred to you both as watermen. What, what does that term mean to you, Russell? For me, it, it's probably being good in the water at a lot of things. Would I call myself a waterman? I probably, I think I'd be close. There's a lot of things I do pretty well in the in the ocean, but an Orion waterman is is that's how it sounds like you, you're a good surfer, you're a good diver, you're a good swimmer, but 
you've got a really good understanding of the ocean, I think, and that's the bit that takes the, the experience and the years. It's, and with the photography side of things, the photography part is really the easy part. It's the experience and being in the ocean for the last, uh, you know, 35 years is why I can do what I can do. What about you, Shannon? Is that um, a word that's important to you? Uh, do you think it describes what, what you do? Um, yeah, it's probably might not be important to me, but, yeah, the word, uh, I think itself, I guess it's multi, multifaceted where you're comfortable in the ocean and the environments and it doesn't matter what watercraft you're in, whether it be a boat or a surfboard, or, but you're comfortable, comfortable in the ocean and I guess have the tools or the mindset to be able to deal with what comes your way. Well, I remember when I learnt to dive in the late 70s and the, the people I revered were these these people who I, I thought of as, as watermen, you know, the all boating, all fishing, all diving uh, kind of yeah. guys. Surfing really wasn't part of my, my world back then, I suppose, so I should have added that into the mix. But but these people grew up in the water. They were Spiros first. They were snorkelers, and and that's kind of how I started um, out before I even thought about putting on a scuba tank. And the courses, even the open water course back then, was quite tough. You know, it was it was a fair income thing. You know, and people wouldn't take it up unless they'd kind of grown up as snorkelers and divers. I don't think. And these days, for, for Partly for better, partly for worse. Um, you know, it's it's an amazing opportunity open to anyone, including people with disabilities and from all walks of life. You can do a, a pretty quick course or an easy scuba diving experience, and it's wonderful that the ocean is opened up to so many more people. But at the same time, we've lost some of that inherent sort of skill and background that makes people safe and, and comfortable in the water. So it's great to talk to guys who have probably come from families where that's just all second nature and. And you've continued that tradition, and I presume your kids probably will too, if the, if that's something they enjoy. So, touching on on spearfishing, because I think we've all uh, enjoyed a bit of that by the sounds of things o over the years, mm. and inevitably that that leads to the discussion about sharks, which has been a fairly formative part, particularly for you, Shannon, um, which has led on to some business opportunities as well, which which we'll we'll touch on in a minute, but. Uh, we'll start with Russell because your story is a bit longer, I think, Shannon. But Russell, what's what's your uh, experience with sharks as a surfer, as a photographer, and and perhaps as a spear fisherman? I, I remember the first uh, shark, the real first shark experience I had was actually out north with a tiger shark, and that had come had come out on the charge. And I always thought to myself that I was going to be you know, this is what you do if a shark comes up and this is years ago and I'm going to punch it in the nose and I'm going to do all this. Well, none of that happened. <laughs> it was basically, I was like a little kid when you're five years old and thought there was a monster coming into your room and I just put my head under the sheet. So, and that's, I basically just turned around thinking it was all over and then the shark just stopped about half a metre away from me and um, went in the face of the wave. But all three, there's only three of us in the water and the experience changed all of us. Like a couple of the others went and were looking at painting black and white stripes on their boards and all sorts of things. But it was, it was just a real, in the end for me, it was a lesson in how I acted in that situation and never to let that happen again, you know, like obviously being around Shannon and, and hearing his experiences has given me a little bit more 
bit more of a mindset when something happens. And, you know, we've had a few sharks come up and, you know, I'm, I'm way more prepared and I'm putting my head under the water, I'm looking at them and, and stuff like that. But they're, they've just been bronzies and stuff. It's not like, you know, Shannon can swim with great whites. I'm not sure if the great white thing. <laughs> I might be that little kid in the blanket again with a great white. <laughs> I'm worried that um, bronze whalers aren't smart enough to recognise that you're staring them down and they'll just bite you anyway. Whereas at least a, a great white shark might be intelligent enough to know that you know you're standing up to them. Shannon, what uh, obviously you had a, a dreadful experience um, with with Greg Pickering when you have abalone diving and. Um, I can certainly remember hearing that story in detail because it was, uh, you know, pretty uh, epic, impactful in the Australian media. Just tell us what happened on that day. Yeah, that was, it's probably, there's been a handful of days in my life where, you know, you have events that probably shape a lot of what you do and who you are. That's definitely one of them. So, you know, having a love for the water and being brought up down in Esperance, uh, you know, moving into a bit of ab diving here and there was a pretty obvious kind of, I guess, career move. And, yeah, so Greg, he's an amazing, you know, amazing guy in the water. I think he holds a couple of world records still for spearfishing. So he's he's really well known on that front and, and more so now for, uh, you know, having two shark attacks and survived them both. But on that day in particular... We'd been, I can't remember the amount of time, but it had been a fair while. We were out um, at a place called Poisson Creek or Poison Creek uh, and it's probably 120 k's or so east of Esperance, give or take. It's an hour down a full drive track and probably, yeah, I don't know, an hour by road as well. And so when we're ab diving in those remote areas, it's quite a logistical manoeuvre. Like we move out caravans, tractors, big boats and we've, beach launching big boats from from the beach. So, and we might camp out for maybe, you know, a month to two months at the different locations before moving moving to different places. So we hadn't seen anyone for quite a while. And then this one morning, I think it was the first morning, Greg and young Callum uh, came and they moved in beside us. So we were stoked. We were happy to have a bit of company because I was with Andrew Rowe and myself, uh, another bad diver from Esperance. And there was good and bad. Good we had company, bad that uh, Greg probably hadn't done as much diving down there as what we had. So we we pretty much were pretty sure he was going to follow us around. <laughs> if you're ever seeing this, Greg, <laughs> I shouldn't follow our guys around, mate. <laughs> A bit of instant instant karma that day. <laughs> I don't know if that's too soon or not, but no, but no. So we we ended up probably twenty k's up the coast from the beach launch. It's in the middle of nowhere, pretty much out near Cape Arid uh, National Park, and I've received some pulls on the hooker hose. Um, you know, there's compressed air from the boat going down to the diver underneath, and the divers sitting chipping away abalone. And it was only at the start of the day, I think I was on my first dive and Andrew was driving the boat. And I've got the emergency signals of repeated pulls on the hose and you instantly, it's one of two things, it's either your air supply is going to run out or there's a big body around. And so we've started to emergency ascent, you know, spinning as I'm coming up just to make sure nothing was going to hit me on the way up. And you would have heard, you know, Boat motors, they, the noise travels a long way underwater. And I've 
heard just as I was just about to hit, hit the surface, I've heard boat motors going flat out. And I was like, this is a bit weird. And Greg had been diving probably only 500 metres to a K away from us. It wasn't, wasn't far at all. And I, got, I hit the deck and Andrew goes, Greg, Greg's been hit. And instantly you've just gone, oh, no, you know, how, how bad is this? And jumped on the sat phone, made a call and just said, look, Greg's been hit. Um, it was to Marcus Strump, his guy that was heading up the uh, Avalonia Association down there. And we normally had a helicopter. There's an old ab diver who had a helicopter down there. His name uh, Bob Kent. And we were assuming we were going to have access to that helicopter to, to help us uh, get out of there. Um, but ended up being, uh, we got a call on the sat phone a little bit later that that wasn't going to be the case. And it was going to be up to us to uh, to make the evacuation out of there, basically. So we've pulled back up to the bay and we've pulled up to Greg's boat, who Callum was driving. And I've jumped on boat, saw Callum, and he was just an absolute mess. And then went to the front of the boat and then I've seen Greg and he was, yeah, he, he was in a terrible way. Kind of uh, directed, you know, Callum to do a couple of bits and pieces. Uh, and then jump back on the boat. And I just remember there was one moment, and I remember looking at Andrew and he's gone, is it a white? And it's like, it's a white. And it's like, he's, he's not going to make it. And so there we are, you know, two hours down the full drive track, he's the Vesperance kind of three guys, tractors, boats, just even getting the boats out of the water with three guys is an issue, you know. So we made that decision at that stage that Greg was in that bad a shape that we, we probably shouldn't move him because uh, it looked like if we were to lift him up, he'd probably fall in too. So we left him in the boat, put him put the trailer on the boat behind the car and then we've stopped in probably two or three k's up the road. Um, that's where all our caravans were and sleeping gear and we thought, all right, well, we've got to try at least. It's just like, okay, let's let's go for a run and let's try to get him out of there. So, yeah, I remember just the visuals were absolutely, I guess terrifying is probably, probably one word, but he'd kind of, as he was working, he was on the bottom of the ocean leaning forwards, knocking off abalone, and this thing came front on and it engulfed him up to, you know, his waist. And if it wasn't for the fact that, you know, generally abalone divers, they'll run a spare air bottle on the back, a little pony bottle for reserve air and a bit of a leg vest to disperse the weight over the whole torso instead of just a weight belt around the waist. And if it wasn't for those two things, he would have been in two pieces straight away. But as he was working his way out of the shark, however the heck he managed to do that, he just got torn apart. And, like, he had a, had a flip-top scalp and Callum had kind of dealt with a bit of that but his his face was kind of spread apart I guess you would say uh, so quite often we'll deco on pure o2 as well I just remember having that reg the pure o2 reg trying to place it into Greg's face but not really knowing which cavity to put it in like he was it was pretty yeah it was pretty horrific and he, he still had a great white tooth embedded in his eye socket, on the inside of his eye socket. He had a great white tooth. But I guess, you know, that's probably the terrifying, was the terrifying bit of it. But 
success story in the end because we managed to keep the blood loss down and drive out the full drive track and then we met a ambulance out on the bitumen got him in the ambulance and he survived so he's the crazy kid still have diving nowadays so it's kind of a success story i guess yeah was was greg conscious through throughout that at the first stages he kind of was but you couldn't you couldn't really make out the words he was saying almost um mm. i don't know if anyone's been around man mangroves before they're quite a terrifying kind of noise when you know you know fully grown man is you know when they're hurt and they're busted up and there's some not nice noises coming out so he was still conscious and being able to make a little bit of noise and we were trying to listen to sentences that he was saying yeah i guess he was hopefully always going to survive given that he survived that first half an hour to an hour and uh, so he had for whatever reason something critical hadn't been nicked or, or cut and so that was on his side but uh, what a what a dreadful experience for for everyone and and i gather that same year you lost another friend up the coast or down the coast a, a bit as well to a shark yeah yeah we did so it was kind of it was a series there in wa that was a really bad run so one of my good friends um yeah was surfing down in the southwest uh, lost his life as well to attack that was um yeah heck of, heck of a year that one yeah so this all knocked you around a fair bit i gather and and you took a bit of time out from the from the water it's probably um i talk about this with audie um a little bit but uh it was one of those times like i i live over in the southwest now not down in esperance and i stopped out diving i stopped surfing I tried to get back in the water. I can't remember how long after, um, but just remember getting a surfboard under my arms, Esperance waters, beautiful, clear, you know, not a, nothing out of place at all. You can see a million miles in the ocean and so no reason to fear anything. But I just, I looked at the ocean different to I ever had before and I was just full of fear. And I remember going and trying to re-enter into the water and... It just didn't happen. I started crying and throwing up and just couldn't couldn't get back in. So I tried to do the Aussie macho thing and just work through it and push through it and went and forced the issue, went and sat out the back for 45 minutes and same thing, just cried, threw up, and then I think it was at that point I probably had to recognise that something was actually going on and the seems crazy to uh you know say four letters of ptsd but i think i'd just seen a little bit too much and it, it was affecting me and i had to go and get that sorted before i could you know re-enter the water and actually uh enjoy myself back in the ocean again russell how how was this for you obviously not being directly involved but seeing your friend suffer like this was that um that must have been tough and and what were you able to do to to help Shannon? This is probably um, before Shannon and I even got close, but I have heard about him speak about it and, and share his experiences. I think Shannon himself found, it took him a while to find a little bit of peace. I don't think he let too many people in back then. So it, it was it's kind of like that, like Shannon said, we tried to Aussie it and um, it wasn't working for him and it was more... I'd say his wife now, that would have helped him the most. 
have you had similar situations where you know stuff has gone in on on in the water and uh, you've struggled to get back in or you've you've been lucky enough to miss anything major like that no not not so much in the water but definitely in my um fire brigade days because you, you're always around death it, it feels like and it's and that's kind of why i'm not in the fire brigade now because uh, you know a couple of incidents happened and it, it basically oh, was getting real life lessons and i end up quitting and that's why I'm, I'm like a full-time photographer now it's just i just had enough of kind of seeing that stuff yeah it's more i'd say it was the fire brigade days that taught me the most lessons yeah well, i've worked for a while in the um ambulance service here in south australia and um I think the fireys and the police actually get the worst worst of it because you know you, you still go to the jobs where you don't even bother to call us because there's no point and uh, you're responsible for cleaning up the mess and you know hosing out the cars and all that sort of stuff where where there's no point calling the health professionals so I can't imagine the stuff that you guys would would deal with that we never even get get the call to so yeah I, I can sense that must be tough. I was trying to think about that the other day, actually, because it's one incident in particular why I quit, and I, I was wondering why it was that one and, and not others. And I think it's more the fact that she died basically in my arms. I think that's that was heavier, and obviously um, we had ambulance officers at that at that scene, but the ones where the previous ones and I'd gone to so many, you know, like suicides and house fires and stuff like that. And they're already passed away. They felt like they had no effect. Like oh, I can remember those days just, you know, if I'd go to a suicide and house fire and I'd come home, like nothing even happened. It was just part of the job. But, but that one, I was just, it just made me reflect more on my own life than, than anything. It's very strange how some incidents can trigger an emotion where others seem to have very little effect and some people have described it to me as you know everyone's got a bucket and at some point the bucket will overflow and can just take one one more drop on one day and uh, suddenly the bucket starts leaking when when you thought it was all watertight and i think for very experienced long time members of some of these emergency services it can just be that one case that sometimes pushes you over the edge or it can be a case that has some particular significance <coughs> and maybe you don't even realize why it is but obviously in shannon's case this is um this is pretty obvious why, why you know, those two events in that year would be so profound and have such a dramatic impact on, on your mental health. So you guys, I don't know if you have a role in this, in this Russell, but Shannon, I know you've been, uh, I think, talking about this a bit now. You've both done a bit of public speaking around some of this stuff. Um, are you, Shannon, are you trying to um, help other people from your experiences? Yeah, for sure. I think... Um Russ mentioned a little bit earlier, probably like I'd, I'd even say as little as five years ago, you know, five to seven years ago, I would never in my life would have imagined that I'd be public speaking or doing podcasts like this and actually sharing experiences um, and things that have happened to me. But I guess the motivation, I didn't even realise how um, therapeutic for myself it would be even though that's it's probably when I first started actually <laughs> talking in general it's probably the hardest six months of my life going from an Aussie male that never talked about anything ever and just masked you know feelings and emotions with alcohol and bravado to being able to actually you know communicate on level but you talk about your feelings and I know the benefit now um, of seeking out professional help 
and getting healthy biases and using that support network around you. And I, uh, unfortunately, for a long, quite a long time, didn't have a support network around me. And since seeking out that help and making those changes, and I think one of the biggest things has been um, conscious decision making. Whereas for so many years, um, as a young young adult and you know, even as a moving on up to 35, I, I wasn't making any conscious choices. Life was happening to me and I was just reacting. Whereas I finally got to a place where it's like, okay, I'm going to actually start setting some goals and trying to shoot in a direction that is positive for me, my family and everyone around me instead of being a burden to them. I know that's been life-changing for me for the better and if through shared experience we can, you know, Russ and I are doing a bit of keynote speaking together and it, it seems like we've actually, you know, had, had some impact on some people and some feedback that where they might actually reach out because I think if they look at guys like Russ and myself and go, okay, these two Ellen heads can uh, talk about their feelings, hopefully we can too and maybe go go sort, seek out some help and and try to steer our lives in a little bit better direction if I don't have the medical background and, you know, I don't have never felt like I've been able to give probably to community in, in too many different ways. It's been quite a selfish life of, I've lived on, on some fronts. So to be able to actually feel like you could make a difference to someone's life through a shared experience, it, it's probably the best thing and the most rewarding thing I've ever done. Well, I think we can't emphasise that message enough and, and fortunately more and more blokes are starting to talk, express their feelings and, and make it cool to, to do so. So I absolutely applaud that you guys are doing that. So let's lighten the mood a little bit because there's been some really positive stuff come out of this. Tell me about the Shark Eyes project. Yeah, it's been kind of exciting that has. Probably started off there's uh, a bit of a labour of love, to be honest. I think due to, you know, we've heard about the Greg attack. I used to basically shark eyes. It, it started off as a shark mitigation strategy where basically it's a big set of eyeballs. And I used to silicon on the back of all my wetsuits, a big set of eyeballs. Um, and that was just purely because personally I'd seen sharks change their behaviour once they knew they'd been spotted. They just became more cautious. So then we started looking into a bit more of the science of why that happened. And my sister, she's a marine scientist, and I got her to start delving into, you know, eye spots and biomimicry just to see if there was any merit uh, behind what I'd seen. Found out that nature had been using eye spots as an effective means to prevent attack for a long time. So basically, that's how shark eyes came about. You know, we have the heavy water training that runs off that. And we have some other water products and wetsuits and other bits and pieces, but it all originated with the shark deterrent and the mitigation strategy. Yeah, so there's, there's stuff for divers. You can have some eyeballs on your scuba tanks. You can have uh, on the back of your head with a mask strap. It might keep the magpies from sw swooping me as well if I were it uh, when I'm out for my morning run. Um, yeah, welcome on the school kids' helmets. <laughs> <laughs> but I do like the idea more than painting my surfboard like a black and white sea snake, I think. Um, and I definitely don't want to wear the, the sea snake wetsuit. So I think the eyeballs carry a bit more punch. And actually when, and I know that, um, and you've said this yourself, that the science of this hasn't truly been tested, but there's a lot of 
good anecdote and 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 some a lot of common sense and and some science in terms of uh, what we see in nature with mimicry and so forth. So so there's every reason to think that it can be effective, but very difficult to test. I know you know when you see people yes. swimming in open water with great whites and you see them staring at the shark and the shark behaves in a very different fashion as as you've mentioned i'm sure it's the one you don't see coming as the one that's going to bite you so if they think you've seen them that would be very reassuring and you know even even if the science isn't there and you can correct me if i'm wrong but even if the science isn't there even if it's a placebo thing that helps people get in the water and enjoy themselves and become fitter and better for that even that's you know, good enough for me. And if you're feeling more confident in the water, even if it was a placebo, which obviously we don't believe it is, if you're sending off those signals of confidence and acting less like prey, that's a win in itself. There's a um, really interesting study. I think he's from South Wales, actually. He might be from your motherland there. Uh, uh, Professor Neil Jordan, he does a fair bit of work with the Taronga Zoo. It's a study, you know, there's no direct science with our product, but uh, probably one worthwhile mentioning is is this this example because um, it's the only time I've seen any formal studies done where somebody has tried to protect something else by the use of eye spots, you know, fake eyes instead of nature itself being proven through. So over in Botswana, there was lions were hitting cattle and basically they needed to come up with a low-cost method to prevent the lions from hitting the cattle. Dr Neil Jordan decided to paint eyes on the cow's bums and so he did a four-year study. Um, it was 2008 cows or something or other. He painted a third of the ca- third of the herd. He left bare bummed. A third of the herd, he had little crosses he put on, and then a third he had eyes. Um, and I haven't got the exact numbers, so don't, don't reference me on this one by any means, but it was something like over the four years, 48 or 68 cows got hit that were bare bummed, a lower percentage got hit with crosses, showing that crosses did make a little bit of an advantage of not getting hit, but then not one cow in four years got hit that had eyes on its bum. Yeah, well, there's a guy you've probably also heard of in South Australia, Charlie Hooveneers, who's a, um, yeah. a marine scientist who's done a lot of work on white sharks with uh, Shark Shield and other shark uh, electric deterrents and comparing the South African experience with the South Australian experience, I think, where, you know, as you know, in South, in Western, in, in South Africa, the, the sharks tend to ambush from down deep and come up and, and hit the, the seals from underneath, whereas in uh, Australia, they tend to ambush in a different way. And I think whilst the jury's still out about those shark shields and so forth, what he has discovered is that anything that um, puts the shark off even for a moment means that they don't do that very destructive ambush first attack and they're more likely to be a bit circumspect and come and have a a test bite or a bit of a poke around before they commit because you know energy is so important in 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 wild animals and they don't want to waste any if it's if it's a little bit uncertain that the the result's going to be successful so if you if your eye spots slow them down and make them come in for a look it means you've got a chance to to respond so russell i've seen on the website that uh, yourself and greg pickering and a number of other people are, are featured on the website have you got any uh, official involvement in this? Are you an investor or uh, a user of the product? I've, I've spruced it up enough. I should be on a percentage. I'll tell you that. I'll, I'll hit up Shannon. I'll <laughs> send him an invoice. But no, I'm just, uh, I I use the product and my son uses the product that, that surfs. And obviously I've heard Shannon talk about it quite a lot and he's easily convinced me for sure. But it's, we just did a, um, 
a trip down Esperance and the water was, we're just doing some of the new, like a product range for the new wetsuits. And I've never really seen how good they look because Shannon was diving pretty deep and I'm trying to take photos for above diving down myself and you'd lose Shannon completely. You know, you wouldn't even see him. Uh, maybe parts of his spear gun if you're lucky, but you can definitely see the eyes. So that they really do stand out. So yeah, no, nah, I'm just using myself personally. So Russell, what's going on with you now? Have you got any projects uh, underway? I've just, I'm actually just starting a project called um, Desert Light, which is it, it will eventually be a foundation, and it's taking photography out to the outback to communities, Aboriginal communities, and also making photography available to young minds with mental health problems or, or disabilities. So it's been a bit of a long process. It's It's been my idea, but I've definitely copied one of my um, mates, uh, Quinn Beardman, who's got Bundaroo Music, who is helping me get it off the ground. So, yeah, that's the biggest project. I'm still trying to... Um, do commercial work and some brand work, but that's definitely been my full focus. And I'm just about to go up to Kananara, three or four inland, four hours inland to to teach photography. So it should be good, and it's it's a great way to um, give back. And this came because of Bundaroo Music, and Quinn would be up there teaching music, and if there's a couple of stragglers, I would just pass in my camera and, and let them shoot, and we could see um, what. The camera was doing for the kids so should be interesting sounds great and kananara has got some fantastic caving up there too so you should uh, hook up with the locals and check some of the caves out you know i could talk all day to you fellas i think you're the epitome of uh, the uh, aussie knockabouts who have done more than a, the occasional thing in your lifetimes and um not only at you know great adventurers but pretty inspirational too you know with, with some significant strife and, and struggles in your lives but coming out the other side with some amazing lessons learned and imparting that to other people especially you know sharing stuff about mental health and and um you know spreading the word that it's pretty cool to to talk to people and and get help when it's needed uh shannon thank you very much for sharing your your stories and russell thanks so much for for talking about your creative works in the water and bringing your mate along for a chat as well. It's been awesome to talk to both of you. Pumped to be plus one. Thanks heaps for having us out. Yeah, thank, thanks for having us. Cheers, guys. Had to be well, Cheers for that. Well, that's the show for today. Thanks for joining me. If you want any more information, you can check out the podcast website at realriskpodcast.com. <laughs>